Coming up on Triangulation, I sit down with Ruha Benjamin and talk to her about her book, Race After Technology, a fascinating look at all the different ways that we maybe do and don't know about the biases that exist in technology, and then ask her about some ways that we can sort of solve for that problem and the different parties that are accountable. You are not going to want to miss this fascinating conversation, so stay tuned. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Triangulation, episode 418, recorded Monday, October 14th, for October 18th, 2019. Ruha Benjamin, Race After Technology. Hello and welcome to Triangulation. This is, of course, the place where we talk to the smartest people in the world about the most important topics in technology. I'm Micah Sargent, and I am so excited today to be talking about the book Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. This is a fascinating look into uh, race and and race relations and how it relates to the technology uh, era, frankly, that we live in today. Uh, Ruha Benjamin is the Associate Professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton, as well as the founder of the Just Data Lab. And Ruha, welcome to the show. So happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not going to lie. I was, you know, doing some research before the show and I was I had looked at some interviews and uh, uh, talks that you had given and I was just fascinated with, with everything. Thank so you. really uh, Thank pumped you. to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. So let's go ahead and kick things off. I mean, uh, would you like to give our listeners out there who, you know, are, are sort of wondering uh, what this book is about, sort of a brief overview kind of of, of what you're yeah. focusing on within the book? Sure. And so a few years ago, um, as I was on a, a, a sabbatical and just kind of going through news feeds and I noticed an uptick of headlines and hot takes that were... <laughs> Um, warning about racist robots and all of the many ways that algorithmic discrimination, machine bias, all the kind of phrases that people were using to make sense of how technology can enable um, forms of discrimination, whether by race, sex, class, etc. And so I was interested in the public discourse around um, algorithmic discrimination, automated forms of inequity. And I thought that um, I would infuse into that conversation this tradition of thinking about inequality in society systemically. And so there's a lot of literature and scholarship that's been built up over over 100 years of people thinking about systemic forms of discrimination. And to me, it was interesting to apply that to computer systems, because usually when people think of systemic inequality or systemic racism, they're referring to laws and policies, the ways in which things get encoded legally so that you don't have to feel individual malice to perpetuate inequality. You just have to follow the rules or follow the laws. And so for me, it was interesting to bring that conversation to bear on the world of data sciences and technology and um, really sort of bring this literature in conversation with um, the public debate about this. 
Absolutely. And so first of all, I have to say, at one point you said headlines and hot takes. And if you don't have a newsletter called Headlines and Hot Takes right now, you absolutely should. <laughs> that is great. Uh, but I really, the the idea here that, you know, we, I, I think too, I think sort of historically, uh, specifically, and in terms of, like you said, policy. But when we are looking now at the inequality that takes place, we almost have this like divide, this belief that if we throw technology at something, then suddenly it becomes this pure, unbiased thing. But as you talk about in the book, and I think as at least data scientists, some data scientists talk about, these systems that we're putting in place are built by humans who do have these inherent biases. And so we can't just sort of it seems uh, excuse the fact that uh, at times these systems are uh, going to have these biases, right? Absolutely. And so that's really what's what attracted me to this line of research is that the more that people think of a field or a way of producing knowledge as entirely objective mm. and asocial and apolitical, that imbues in that form of knowledge production and authority and uh, a, a way of arbitrating reality and making decisions that people stop questioning because we assume that it's objective and neutral. And for that very reason, I think we need to be very rigorous and consistent in terms of keeping our eye on and questioning the way that emotions, values, biases, past patterns of human decision-making get encoded into these new systems, but then become black boxed and people stop questioning them because we assume that it's neutral and objective. And so we need to open that box up and understand what are the the historic patterns, what are the biases and assumptions that are being, um, you know, the inputs of these automated systems um, that then are often reproducing inequality in the world. And so that's that's precisely what motivates me. And this is not something that's novel about emerging technologies. Science and technology has historically had this air and allure of objectivity that people assume um, it rises above human concerns and human um, patterns of behavior. And so it's building on this tradition um, in many ways. And I think the stakes are a bit higher now because of the way that it's impacting so many more people in so many more areas of our lives. And so um, I ho- I'm hoping that we can learn from our history and um, in order to um, really rethink the, 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 the systems that we're building. Yeah, I, I love the anecdote that you start with at the beginning, sort of talking about uh, growing up in a community where you could hear the helicopters, uh, the, the police patrolling uh, via helicopter and in other ways. And it's sort of, you know, it's rattling the windows or it's rattling the door. And so it's a, a very front uh, or, or like you confronted the fact that that was going on. Yeah. You were aware of it and you the community felt watched and in many ways, I think for some people at least, there is this idea that without that that front-facing reminder, they may not feel uh, as if they're watched. But we, some of us know <laughs> that that has not yeah. changed, that there's still that there. But I, I really think that that is a, a chilling and also important uh, point that we go from a place where it's visceral now to this sort of uh, it's outside of our minds. And like you said, we give uh, the benefit of the doubt to Mm -hmm. these 
this to science and to to technology as if suddenly things are going to be uh, like you said objective and asocial. Exactly. But it's yeah. Still there. So there are some things that are definitely consistent with our past. The way that we, for example, often hone technological advancements on the backs of the most vulnerable. So many breakthroughs have benefited from oppressive systems, whether it's experimentation on enslaved women to better gynecology, whether it's um, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment to, to hone treatments for syphilis, whether it's uh, you know experiments on prisoners to hone various kind of dermatological techniques. And up till recently, last week, where Google was found trying to uh, coercively oh, take hi, fake yeah. face scans from um, homeless and uh, and homeless people and students in Atlanta, the vulnerable populations have often been the substrate, have been the test ground for scientific and technological advancements. So there's continuity there. But as you mentioned, there's also discontinuities, way that our, ways that our current system are perpetuating forms of discrimination and inequality, but in a much more subtler way. And so it's, like you said, not in our faces. And this is more of a reason for us to study it and to debate it and to put it into the realm of democratic decision-making rather than let people make decisions behind closed doors and private industries all the while affecting everybody. But nobody voted on these people to make decisions about technologies that are impacting all of our lives. And this, this subtle way in which, for example, surveillance systems are yes. um, being rolled out throughout the world, really, not even just the United States, um, is more of a reason for us to take it seriously and to and to look at it because it's, it's you can't point anymore, you know, simply to a racist cop or a racist judge or a racist doctor, there are automated systems that are perpetuating that racism of the past, but the agents behind that are harder to, to, to hold accountable. Yeah, I mean, speaking of surveillance systems, we've got the Ring video doorbell and everything that uh, Ring is involved with where they've partnered with police forces. Um, and that has been an ongoing topic, frankly, in some of the shows that I do regularly. Uh, we've yeah. talked time and time again about ring and what's going on there we we have a it's it's this it almost feels sometimes like the technology moves so fast and we we've become let me try to compare it to something like uh medicines where a medicine has to go through all these different processes and has to be tested in all these different ways and has to pass all these regulations before it can actually be uh, brought onto the market and folks can use it and benefit from it or not benefit, benefit from it. But the technological uh, industry where we have you know a, a doorbell that people are just slapping on their doors left and right and then suddenly mm -hmm. Ring is making these decisions behind closed doors without yeah. any input... It's yeah. kind of frightening uh, yeah. how that's allowed to happen. Yeah, and I like that analogy of thinking about it parallel to other regulatory systems where we try to create safeguards so that we don't put things on the market that can harm um, different individuals and groups. And so when we think about the speed of the advancements and the and the innovation is one part, but also the values animating it. So even within the medical industry, 
you have those safeguards, but if the driving imperative within that industry is to make profit mm -hmm. rather than to heal people or to treat people, there are still all kinds of ways in which harms get perpetuated, whether it's through the pricing of drugs, whether it's through our insurance um, industry that allows, you know, some people have access to medicines. And so we need to think about the pace of tech design, but also what are the animating values? You know, does profit trump the public good? And so um, there's a lot of these um, variables that I think, like you said, we've taken for granted that it's going to benefit. And when it comes to say like Ring or other surveillance technologies, you know, the one of the dominant things that I hear people say, well, you know, if you if you didn't do anything wrong, you shouldn't you shouldn't mind. Right. Oh, like boy. if you don't have anything to hide, uh. then what's the issue? And only people who are sitting in a position of privilege and obliviousness, really, mm -hmm. um, to the way that our current policing systems target people, regardless of what they actually do, would say something like that. Uh. People who have never been accused of something or been suspected of something regardless of their actual actions. And so, again, thinking about what is the mindset and the worldview that animates these systems is this idea that criminality and innocence is some objective pure divide rather than the, a production of those who create and enforce the law who then position some people as inherently criminal and some as inherently innocent. And then we need to think about how this history of criminalizing racialized populations in particular um, are, are left out of the conversation of tech design and surveillance systems when they should be front and center. Mm. Uh, folks, if you're listening and not watching, then you didn't see me giving so many snaps uh, to that because absolutely, I uh, agree with so many of those points. And in fact, I can remember uh, before I had my sort of uh, come to Jesus moment, as it were, about privacy and security, um, where I fell into that camp of like, well, if there's, you know, I have nothing to hide, so I'm not yeah. worried. No, we, when we think of things that way, not only are we doing ourselves a disservice, but we are doing everyone who needs these protections in place a disservice. Absolutely. And for us to have apathy, I think, about these things yeah. to, to, and I feel like it's a bit insidious. I feel like some of these companies sort of count on that apathy that we yeah. don't read the terms of service, that we, you know, yeah. are fine with putting this technology in place and don't yeah. care about it. I mean, I can go up to a friend and say, you know, that television that you have, it costs $100 less because there's a system, there's a piece of software on there that can watch what you're watching on the TV mm. that they then sell to an advertising agency to supplement the cost. And then that friend yeah. would be like, oh, well, that's fine. It doesn't. And we do that too much. That the, yeah. the, the, the joining, I think, of ignorance, and I don't mean yeah. ignorance in the negative sense, but ignorance yeah. just in the not knowing sense. Yeah. is joined with that apathy and you get this just like take all of these things away from me or I don't necessarily care about that and yeah. oh that's where it gets dangerous yeah yeah it's our it's our apathy but it's also the indifference of the people producing the technologies also sometimes people respond to my work and say well you know I don't really think these um you know these tech designers um are racist or they're trying to harm people. And I would agree. I, I mean, we can't prove that one way or another. And it's actually um, besides the point because right. it's not necessarily individual malice or intention to harm, but it's an indifference to the social dimensions of one's work and one's inventions. And the fact that 
the 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 things that you produce are likely to um, be used and implemented in ways that harm um, particular groups and sort of taking that on board early on in the design process ra- rather than waiting for some controversy to break out where your ignorance is on display, right. uh, as was clear with the Google um, example. And so I think we need to think and talk more about the danger and the harm of indifference, mm. indifference on the part of the, the organizations and companies that are producing technology, indifference to the social and also a kind of naivety about the social, you know, so the ho- the hope to diversify facial recognition technologies, for example, is just one, just because it's on my mind from this Google homeless story, um, you know, where the this coercive um, process is wrapped in the language of we're trying to make the technology better at being able to detect darker skin individuals. And so that is the attempt to create an inclusive product through a coercive process on the backs of vulnerable people. Also ignoring the fact that the very technology that you're honing is likely to be used to target these very same people in ways that that are harmful, either through policing or other institutional mechanisms that look at particular populations as sources of danger and lack and 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 and, and you know um, menace. Mm-hmm. And so. We have to take that larger context into consideration rather than, than just giving lip service to inclusion. We're trying to make this technology more diverse and inclusive yeah. um, as these buzzwords that mean nothing in, in the reality that we live in today. Well, and to go back to you know a point that you, you've, you've made in the book and before, it's, it's fascinating to me when I think uh, about the social aspect of, of how there is, I would say, more of attention maybe whether it's always been going on or not there's more attention paid to our our words right now uh in society and so we we talk about how intent is different from impact i may Mm -hmm. not have intended to hurt you with the words that i used but that it doesn't matter with intent it matters how those are how i impacted you and that's where we're trying i think to be more aware of that and so it's fascinating you know you talked about how when we look at technology we sort of just immediately take all of the social aspect out of it and and look at it from this very um if you will allow it a star trek reference a very vulcan (laughs) point of view where it's just logic (laughs) And we yeah. can't do that because there's impact there too. It's yeah, not just about absolutely. intent. Absolutely. That that is a point of view to just see everything through the lens of computation and try to erase the sociality, erase the politics of our artifacts, our the things that we create. Like that is a very specific way of seeing the world. It's specific in that it pretends to be universal and objective and rise above everything rather than situated like the rest of us. And so I think it's important to um, point to the specificity of a worldview that tries to isolate itself from everything else and tries to create this pure space of reason and computation that is allowed to ignore all of the in social inputs and outputs and impacts of 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 the things that we create and so i do as you say have i have noticed a shift in the last few years in terms of the public discourse and awareness when i started this book i really thought um, I would ha- I would be positioned more on the defensive in terms of trying to complicate our 
relationship to technology mm-hmm. and how we talk and think about it. But I feel like in general, there's an awareness, whether it's because of the various Facebook scandals, Cambridge Analytica, you know, this more public consciousness around the, the what people think of as the misuses of technology, but really in many cases are the way that these technologies are optimized and designed, like it's part of the the underlying system. But people are a little more critical of how a technology can harm or exclude or um, you know have these political and social ramifications. So um, that's a good thing. That's a development. Now it meant that you I didn't think, have to write a book that was double the size. <laughs> to exactly. Sort of, uh, and in fact, point. The, most of the book is footnotes, <laughs> and so the book itself is is even shorter than what it looks like. Exactly. So rather than trying to write against the. Uh, um, uh, this naivety and this kind of um, techno-utopian Kool-Aid. I think more people have kind of spit up that Kool-Aid and are looking for some other way to understand our relationship to technology, not as users, because as I say in the book, users get used, and we need to think about ourselves as stewards and as as accomplices and as Mm. ways of actually guardians of the things that we create rather than simply consumers, because I think that lets other people make all of the decisions that impact us. Let's get deeper into that right there. So you, as you, as you mentioned, this is a situation where in many ways, as a user who gets used, you know, we do become complacent. So you, you argue that we have to consider our part, our role, in in our use of technology, correct? Absolutely. And so, you know, like one of the the seeming benefits of um, a targeted advertisements, for example, is that we feel seen by technology. Mm-hmm. Like we're not getting some generic ad. We're getting something that's based off of our past um, habits online and something that's targeted for us. And so there's a, a desire to be recognized and seen by the technologies that we use that we need to question and compliment, compliment, uh, complicate because – the flip side of being tailored to is being targeted. The very same platforms that allow you to see an ad that's made just for you and makes you feel good um, can be used to exclude you. If someone creating the ad decides they don't want people like you in their neighborhood for a housing ad or they don't want people like you for an employment ad, that very same platform allows them to exclude you without you even knowing. And so part of it is to just begin to complicate the desire that we have to be tailored to and to be catered to by technology and to understand the underside of that um, at the same time. And so I'm at this, I don't want to put all of the responsibility though on individuals. And so when people ask me like, what do we do? There are, there are definitely things we can do different ways to think and and interact with our, our, you know, our technological um, creations, but, I put more of the responsibility on those who wield more of the resources and the power, whether it's the tech industry, whether it's legislators, you know, thinking about what accountability structures need to be put in place, regardless if individuals feel empowered or not, that need to safeguard the public well-being and think of technology as a public good Mm -hmm. rather than private consumer objects, right? And so I place more of the responsibility on um, the big players than us as individuals. I think I see some – this is an interesting thing for me because earlier you talked about sort of motivating factors or motivating 
what motivates them to action. And when I think of some companies, they sort of put this very unicorn and rainbow spin on things where the technology that they're producing is created for the for the public good. Mm-hmm. But at their heart, a lot of these companies, uh, Apple, for example, is a hardware company that their primary goal, obviously, is to sell these devices. Mm-hmm. Google's primary goal is to uh, sell their users for, for mm-hmm. advertising. Uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. a lot of the same thing. And so we know that underneath it all, the underlying factors there are about money and mm-hmm. therefore it does play a role in their decision making, no matter what sort mm-hmm. of spin they put on it. So mm-hmm. how, I mean, do you, mm-hmm. do you see companies that are in power right now ever sort of flipping the script there and mm-hmm. trying to focus on it from a public good standpoint? Or is this more about like, we have to have regulations in place that help mm-hmm. help these companies make that decision instead of focusing yeah. so much on the bottom line? Yeah, I don't think that they're going to do it purely by choice. Right. I do think and and I do. But I have seen attempts for them to um, take seriously the criticism and the critique. But the way they want to take it seriously is by um, creating internal safeguards, internal mm. internal accountability structures, saying we, we will we will create an ethics board or we will hire a social scientist or a philosopher to guide us in our work, right? Rather than really having greater transparency and having the accountability come from some entity that is truly independent of the company. Because at the end of the day, you can give all the lip service and rhetoric you want around wanting to create consumer goods for the public, in the public benefit, but you have your primary motivator and driver is the bottom line. And so we can't rely on that context to really um, independently um, serve us. And so we need better laws. We need better um, regulation indeed. Um, and and I think we're going to have to push for that. You know, like other advances that we've made in terms of civil rights laws in the past, nobody passed those laws um, willingly. <laughs> it was right. done through um, challenge, through movement. And, and, and I do see a growing movement. And what's been heartening for me is to see part of that movement being animated by tech industry insiders, by employees, workers at companies, both white collar workers, blue collar workers that um, are, you know, pushing from within the companies. And even just thinking about the labor conditions for a lot of um, the blue collar workers within the tech industry. If you think about that Amazon strike in Minnesota yeah. some months back, you think about ride sharing um, drivers and their efforts to organize. So this is not simply a movement of people outside of tech, but it's in collaboration with people who are working in these companies because to the extent that their own labor conditions are poor and are in themselves putting the profit imperative over the people who work there. We can't expect the companies to take the rest of the public seriously and to safeguard our rights if even the people working for them are not treated fairly and justly. And so in that way, our fate, our experience of technology is directly linked to the experience of those who are employees of these companies who are with themselves rising up and and trying to hold these companies accountable for the way that they are consistently mistreated. So right now, um, among my group of friends, which I would say is a highly, you know, tech 
savvy uh, group who pays attention to news within tech, uh, regardless of, of where that, that fits, if it's just new stuff or if it's the politics. And so there's this interesting stigma right now where I see my friends regularly talking about uh, questioning. This is specifically about Facebook. Facebook has in in the recent past and continually is showing itself to be a company that is socially irresponsible in many a way and maybe has not done enough, definitely has not done enough to take itself uh, seriously for those things that, you know, to, to hold itself accountable. And so right now there's this, um, sort of idea among the you know my group of of friends or or acquaintances that like if you work for Facebook that is a bad thing and you should not Mm -hmm. get a job at Facebook and I you know for the longest time or as long as this has been going on have sort of when I meet a new person and then they tell me they work at Facebook then I want to have a dialogue with them and say you know how long Mm -hmm. have you worked there what part what do you think about all this stuff that's going on but Just the other day, I saw a a series of tweets that was talking about how there are many people within the United States who obviously come from different countries and their visas are based on the job that they have. And Facebook is, uh, you know, again, there are a number of things, but shown to be targeting certain groups of individuals and, and like you said, leaving people out of certain things. And yet these folks who may, these data scientists who may want to leave the company cannot because if they do, if they lose their job, then they have to go back to uh, their country and may not, you know, have those opportunities in the future and things like that. And so it's just a, I think a reminder, the, the level of, there's so much to all of this, I guess is is the only way to put it. And we kind of, we don't, we look at it sort of. It's it's a very one and zero kind of thing. Ones yeah. and zeros. It's very binary, I think, how we think about yeah. technology specifically. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to this idea of not working in particular companies, I, I on the one hand, I'm very um, sympathetic and in solidarity with people who want to engage in strikes of all kinds, whether right. it's, you know, and so we I saw some headlines recently of students at a number of universities who um, ha- have promised not to apply for jobs or work at Palantir, for example, mm-hmm. because of its, um, you know, um, development of technologies for ICE and and other, you know, very coercive systems. And so I, I understand that and I'm and I'm in solidarity with that. And the, in the individual decision making that goes into the calculus of how much can I push from the inside to make change versus that push not not working and eventually, you know, not really helping the situation. I think it's an important conversation and the kind of stock taking for individuals. And at the same time, I think we live in a country in which just paying taxes and those taxes often go to very harmful policies around the world. And right. so in, in some sense, I'm saying this is America. <laughs> <You know, laughs> this is America. Over. And so it's, it's kind of like, you know, yeah, you could um, not work at Facebook, but living in this country, no institution no is untouched by white supremacy in this right. country, by class warfare in this country, by patriarchy. And so we have to find what our realm of, of influences and action. And if it comes to a point where you feel like you can no longer influence and try to create like short-term change um, that is going to ultimately help people and, is you know, contribute to greater equity and justice, and then you might have to leave that job. 
but I do understand that oftentimes this idea of just leaving is a position of privilege, as yeah. you're describing. Not everyone has that luxury to just be, be like, peace out, <laughs> you know? Right. And so that's why when it comes to that, that kind of individual decision making, I, I'm not I don't stand in a position of judgment against people who are trying to still work. I work at an elite in the university that for most of its history has excluded women and people of color. It often gives lip service to high ideals, but if you ask students at this university, there's still forms of exclusion and harm that are perpetuated. And so do I work here or do I quit? Do I try to make sort of short-term you know, change in the realm of influence that I can? Uh, you know, And so I think all of us are grappling with you know, grappling with that. How much are we complicit? And I think we all, to some extent, are complicit in perpetuating harmful systems, but we have to become more aware of it and start to begin changing the patterns. We can't just um, have a relativist um, view of like, well, everything is harmful, so it doesn't matter what I do. It does matter. <laughs> yes. um, but you have to actively work to undo these historic patterns, whatever industry, whatever corner of the of the social world that you work in and live in. Uh, so I want to talk about something that is is right at you know right at the start of your book where we are talking about names and how names matter and this example of of something that seems so simple but again has all of these layers to it and uh, I remember reading about this the well actually I think it's been you know a number of studies that talk about how uh, job seekers with quote, white sounding names, uh, white sounding first names received like 50% more uh, callbacks than job seekers with black sounding yeah. names. And right. how I, I think the way that I you know came across this was a couple headlines that talked about, I changed my name on mm-hmm. my application to blank. Mm-hmm. And suddenly yeah. I started to get, you know, 10, 10 to 15 more callbacks. And yep. the way that algorithmically, that matters. The way that uh, that we we have these processes in place to, you know, you've got a bunch of people applying for jobs and you've got yeah. a system, you know, you, you think I'm going to put this into the machine and the machine is going to make the cold, calculated, logical yeah. decision with no bias, no this, no that. Yeah. But we built these machines or we built these yeah. systems and yeah. we have these biases, biases in yeah. place. It's, yeah. It's what's interesting. So interesting about that example too is that the the desire to build the technologies that will bypass the bias that will get us around our stereotypes and our discrimination grow out of an awareness that humans perpetuate these things, right? So mm-hmm. it's interesting how it's a in one sense it's a good development that people are becoming more aware of that first set of studies you described, in which you send out resumes to employers, you hold all the other aspects of the resumes constant; they're the same, except you switch, you change the names, you have you know black sounding, white sounding names, and you wait to see who's who's going to get called back. And we, in that way, audit our social practices to see that, in fact, despite the, the, the laws that say discrimination is illegal, we still continue those patterns. So then we say, well, you know, if humans are like this, then maybe we can create technologies that are um, better than us, you know, that will help us address this bias. Um, and in one case, you know, I have some colleagues here in computer science who um, tested this out with a natural language, um, natural language processing algorithm, mm-hmm. one of the largest one, largest ones used in AI systems, and they've 
tested to see you know, whether the, the algorithm was going to return results that were less biased than humans and found that, in fact, it, it, it made the same associations that black sounding names were associated with negative words, white sounding names with positive words, because it's, it's learning on the associations that we make in practice. So even if it's not directly training the algorithm, if the the algorithm is learning through a more, uh, this now language processing mm-hmm. because it's such a widespread phenomenon in our language linguistic practices it's learning from us and so in that way we can't rely on tech fixes for this deep-seated social problem right, With, right. whether it's employment discrimination or some other realm we need to think about the root causes and the underlying um, issues that perpetuate it rather than trying to patch it over with with a, a, an app or a software system that is kind of trying to you know bypass it you yeah. know let's deal with the root causes i'm reminded of microsoft's chatbot uh tay uh, yeah. so we for, for folks who somehow didn't hear about this chatbot basically they you know created this artificially intelligent chatbot that was meant to have conversations with folks on on twitter and through those conversations it would through those interactions it would learn uh how to become more human so to speak uh but twitter instead taught it to be racist and yeah. it very quickly like in less than a day it became yeah. a very very racist uh individual racist sexist like a murdering chap yeah mur- exactly really, was like, and so in that case you know it's like do we try to create a chatbot that um, filters out all that negativity or do we try to become better human beings so that that's not even the input <laughs> to <laughs> right. the, the chatbot, right? And so we could use technology in order to like um, kind of, um, you know, it, it, uh, purify our, our tech-mediated space and filter out all of these habits of mind and language or we can also focus on why that was the input to begin with. Why mm-hmm. are online interactions so imbued with racism, sexism, you know, and all manner of um, negativity? And so um, for me, it's as a sociologist, it's important to think at what are our ground truths? Like what are the, 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 the underlying social inputs to technology and how can we address that in a more fundamental way? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that in particular. Um, I think a lot of times when uh, folks are confronted with these these truths, uh, it can be a little bit in some ways disheartening. It can be a little bit uh, tough to to chew on and and recognize, and then sort of you know take oneself and, and. be active about it and and think about yeah. what's next. And so yeah. as a sociologist, what yeah. are and again, I don't want to like you said, we don't want to place too much or or most of the burden on individuals. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the individuals that are listening to Absolutely. this this interview, you know, what do we yeah. what do we do? What what what's what do we do? <laughs> yeah, there's there's, you know, in one sense as you said, like the problem you can process the problem is so overwhelming. Like it's coming to us top-down decisions, laws, policies, designs, bottom-up ways in which users create this, like the chatbot example. So it's coming in all directions. And so my view is that precisely because the issues that we're tackling are so complex, so big, the tentacles Mm. of this problem are coming at us from all directions. What that means 
is also that each of those tentacles, each of those pathways that the problem is being produced are also ways that the problem can be addressed. We don't want each one of us have to take on the whole thing. We need to work in collaboration. We need to organize collectively to, to think about all of these different aspects and the, and the role that we can play. And so if you think about people who are working um, in tech, I described the organizing that's happening there. Those people have decided that they have the most influence and power to try to hold companies accountable from within because that is their workplace and that is their fear, sphere of influence. There are a number of people working in the legal sphere that are working to litigate algorithms. Like when these algorithms have created havoc in people's lives, automated systems that have, um, you know, been implemented in different states that have um, harmed people economically in terms of their health, etc. They have a group of lawyers that are trying to, you know, produce class action lawsuits and create mechanisms that we can hold um, automated systems accountable legally. You know, we have people mm -hmm. like me working in, in education and academia that are trying to think at the mo even more fundamental level, like how do we train people in STEM? Like, how do we train computer scientists? Is it enough for people just to have the technical know-how without any sense of the history or the politics or the sociology of the very technology that they're producing so that they're sitting in some boardroom in Silicon Valley and actually think it's a good idea to send out a team of researchers to go and target homeless people in Atlanta? Shouldn't there be someone in that space that has even a small, you know, a sense of this long history of historical abuses using science and technology on vulnerable people. So how do we train technologists so that, yes, there are accountability structures from the outside, but they also have a sense of this history and this, the politics of knowledge. Um, and then, you know, we have to think about whatever sphere that we're in, like, Hosting a podcast like this is a great service because it's raising public education, public awareness of these issues. And so we can each think about what our sphere of influence is to try to raise the awareness and empower people so that we don't allow these decisions to be made in a vacuum in the private sphere. Even though it's impacting all of us, most people don't think that they really have a say. They don't feel right. like they have the expertise to even question because they don't know all the technical terms, right? Mm -hmm. Even though they're impacted by this, they don't feel that they're equipped to actually be part of the public debate and public conversation. And so the, the, this, the contribution of a podcast like this is to actually bring more people into the conversation so that it's not a small sliver of humanity that's making such, um, you know, um, big decisions that are impacting everyone else. And so, Whatever your passion is, whatever your field, whether even if you like to just play video games <laughs> within the video gaming community, there's all kinds of ways in which racism and sexism is perpetuated, normalized. People don't question. They think that that is that to have fun, you have to accept these very harmful processes. And so even if the sphere of influence is one that on one level is about recreation and having fun. Even that is a site to begin to question the norms and to ask yourself, is this a world that you really want to live in, that you want the next generation to live in, in which um, violence against different groups is normalized and perpetuated and is part of our culture? Even there, you can begin to question and undo these norms. Um, and so 
really because the problem is so big, we each have a role to play. We can each think about how to contribute to rethinking our relationship to technology where we are the stewards. We are empowered to um, imbue it with our highest ideals rather than our basest um, ideals. Wow. Basis values. Yeah. So I love the idea of, of, so we approach this with empowerment and we approach this with, um, trying to neutralize ignorance to the issues and doing that through whatever form of getting the the message out there and talking about these things. And, you know, I I think about, so um, being the person who's in tech among my family, I am certainly the uh, go-to, hey, I've got this problem. Can you help me with it? And a number of times, you know, my grandma has, has had an issue and I am helping her through it. And she blames herself for Mm. having an issue with, with figuring it out. And I always, I always sort of have this moment of, of, you know, no grandma, like you can't, you cannot blame yourself. This is a failing of the technology for whatever reason. And it kind of, it breaks my heart because I know that there are a lot of people out there who do feel that, you know, because they don't have the base understanding uh, or even in some cases a more advanced understanding, then Mm -hmm. the onus is on them and like it's their fault Mm -hmm. that the thing doesn't work. And so I love this idea of of using empowerment as a tool to help people feel more comfortable to become part of the conversation because oftentimes – I would argue that people would have that little gut reaction of like, oh, this feels weird and feels wrong. In the mm-hmm. case of the Google thing, for example, I'm sure there were people who thought, oh, I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. But yeah. they maybe didn't feel like they had the the Absolutely. right words or whatever it was to turn that into something actionable. Um, Absolutely. So that's, uh, yeah. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. And, you know, and technology didn't create that sense of disempowerment, you know, it, it is, it facilitates that we see it in the realm of technology. But if we, you know, thinking again about root causes, like we have an educational system that more often than not, makes people feel bad about themselves Mm. (laughs) from a very young age. There's a small sliver of people that feel really empowered through education, you know, that are tracked to make them feel like they're gifted and talented. Um, But a vast majority of people end up, you know, going through our educational system and are made to internalize that feeling that you described about your grandma. And it's not just a generational thing. Like there are, you know, elementary kids you know, age kids right now that feel have been made to feel like they're dumb, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so this way in which we have something called an educational system that is actually that crushes people's spirits and makes them feel like they don't have a voice. That is a much more fundamental source of the problem that we're talking about that then materializes in the context of technology. So people don't feel like they can question technology or engage technology. And so, you know, this is what I mean by Understanding technology is part of this problem, but it's not creating the problems that we're talking about. It might be enhancing it. It might be speeding it up. And so in that sense, you know, we need to we need to zoom the lens out a a bit and think about what needs to change in our educational system so that we create a citizenry that feels empowered to actually not just become good workers. Right. And know how to code, um, but to question um, the design process to feel empowered within these institutions and these systems to to be able to not to not just you know raise their hand when they see something going wrong but to see it coming also right. you know yes. and so 
this is the kind of rethinking that we need at the really basic level in terms of how we think about knowledge and knowledge production and who 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 gets to have a say. Right. And because as you say, you know, when we're talking about the the this problem that's in place and you know, you talk about the the new gym code, the idea is is not so much that this is a new thing that technology has created as you say it's a employment of new technologies that reflect and reproduce existing inequities yeah, uh, exactly. that are promoted and perceived uh, as more objective or progressive than the discriminatory systems of a previous era and yeah. it's the stuff it's it's there it's it's yeah. all the <laughs> stuff that's there and technology can sometimes give it more power because we choose to sort of say, oh, now technology is taking care of it. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so it's that sort of letting go of our responsibility or our our power vis-a-vis science and technology that enhances the problem, but it didn't technology didn't create the problems that we're dealing with right and so i think that that reorientation actually means what i'm what i'm discussing and what others are the issues others are raising are not anti technology or anti science but it's actually making technology more respond like bringing the responsibility back into the conversation and so the one other silver lining, I'll say that, yes, we've had all of these historic patterns of inequity and justice, but one of the beauties of our current moment is that because the technology is reflecting back at us mm-hmm. through the seemingly objective mirror, that's why I love this show, Black Mirror, also, yeah. is because it's reflecting back at us these things that many people have been unwilling or unable to um, reckon with, unable to address, say, Let's just go back to like employment discrimination. You know, many people make all kinds of excuses about why there are, say, more men in tech or more um, very few people of color. You know, you you can make all kinds of excuses to explain um, inequalities and injustices. And so that has happened for generations. And now what's interesting is that this technology that we thought uh, we were taught to think is neutral and objective is putting back in our faces that these patterns and actually, you know, showing us what we've been doing through the mirror of technology in a way that I think more people are talking about it now than ever before. And so what we're going to do with all that talk is another question. People can talk and talk about problems (laughs) and not actually address it. But I will say that more people and people who are kind of unwilling or unable to really reckon with the inequities that people have been trying to raise Um, awareness of for generations are now um, much more um, willing to at least have a conversation about the fact that, well, if there's no um, gender discrimination or racial discrimination at your company, why did this algorithm that you produced to to hire people, why is it actually discriminating against women and people of color? Like what's making it do that if it doesn't already exist, if the training data doesn't have that pattern built into it? You know what's making the, the, this happen um, as a as a practice through this automated system, and so it, it makes us pause mm-hmm. and think about you know what is actually feeding this. Maybe we should reckon with this um, this pattern that we've been unwilling to before. I hadn't considered that before. That sort of like you said, silver lining that exists there, where people are confronted. And I think another thing, as you were talking just then, I sort of felt inspired because when. When we feel powerless, if we sort of say, you know, oh, this technology thing, I don't understand it. Um, But for you, you know, we're talking about, no, this is something that we can own and we can correct Mm -hmm. through these different means. 
it's like reclaiming your power in a way. Exactly. It's not something exactly. that has right. to take off and, and the tentacles don't have to keep growing. We can reclaim our power. We can uh, sort of right the ship. And I think that in and of itself is very inspiring. Absolutely. And that's really the bottom line is that, you know, many people are, you know, proposing the kind of techno utopian view, right? Technology robots are going to save us. (laughs) Then there's a counter narrative that says, no, you know, the robots are going to slay us. They're going to take all the jobs. They're going to do all this damage. Both of these on both ends, the techno utopian and the techno dystopian, both of them assume that human beings are just kind of pawns. We're just pushed right. over by technology. We, we're either slayed or sa- saved by technology. And in both cases, on both ends of that, it kind of removes the eight human agency and power from the mix. And so rewriting that is to reclaim that middle way, that third way to say, no, technology is not going to slave us or save us. We're going to do that to ourselves through technology. Mm. And so we need to think about, um, you know, reclaiming, as you say, kind of the human agency, accountability, um, the power that's that's there, but that we often um, kind of disassociate and we assume that we're just affected by technology, not that we're shaping it, actually. Right. Well, isn't that so odd? Because it's with something like i don't know wind we can be blown over by that and that makes sense it's it's something that we have not created but the idea that this thing that exists by our doing to sort of give it the power of the wind is really uh, I, I i just i wonder where that ultimately comes from uh the yeah, the, there, the systems that we've investment. given over to yeah there's an investment i think and so i described those two stories those you know those two sides but There's a real investment on those who um, dominate the tech space to create a narrative of inevitability around technology that no matter what we do, this technology is coming. Because the more that we think that a certain tech development is inevitable, then that means we don't have a choice in whether to bring it to fruition or not. And so there's a, an active um, an act, active work being put into making the public think that we are just recipients of the technology that, that is going to come no matter what. And that idea of no matter what, that inevitability is what we have to begin to question and be, begin to refuse certain technologies that we have collectively deemed harmful. So just because... We can create something as a society doesn't mean that we should. And true power is the power to be able to say, no, we don't want X, Y, and Z. Not simply to tweak it to make it better or less harmful, but if we've deemed it harmful, we need the power and the right to say, no, we don't want this, even though we can develop it. And so it's that sense of inevitability around technology, what in academia we call techno-determinism, that we are just determined and shaped by technology, rather than really putting the human agents back into the picture and say, no, some people want us to believe that we have no power, that we're just puppets or we're just affected by technology, and we don't accept that. I'm trying to find, and I, I, I'm having trouble, but I believe it was uh, Paris Martineau for Wired uh, had written an article about this very thing, about uh, how we see these different uh, things and we go, we we are sort of given over to believing that they just had to happen, that uh, eventually uh, this thing was going to be created, and that 
is also a human created thing, which is basically yeah. what you're saying here, that not only do we create the technology, but then we create this, or, or I shouldn't say we, you know, the people who are yeah, in power in these places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I have to hold myself responsible for that too, as a tech journalist and as a, a tech enthusiast, someone yeah. who, you know, when, I don't know, something like Snapchat is questioned yeah. for its existence and yeah. it's my place to sort of explain this app or this service, yeah. but then in explaining it, almost give over to the idea that at mm-hmm. some point this was going to happen and here's why it makes sense that it exists and this and that and the other. Mm-hmm. And so there yeah. is a bit of um, responsibility there, I think, that totally. that we we and by we i mean me and and tech enthusiasts in general mm-hmm. uh are responsible for when we get excited about new stuff and say oh yeah. yes this had to happen um yeah yeah that gives yeah. over some of our power hmm. absolutely absolutely and you know for those who are less likely to be harmed by various technologies the stakes might seem less for them they might not seem like such a big deal like let all the technologies proliferate because in, part, <laughs> in part because you are not necessarily part of a group that's been the underside of technology, whose bodies have been used to hone various kinds of technologies. And I, you know, I think about for 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 people who, you know, um, grow out, come out of histories in which we 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 understand that you know innovation and progress has often been built through various kinds of oppressive practices. We are more likely to um, be cautious or skeptical when we hear the promise of science and technology because we have a keen sense of those deeper layers that that prop up these inventions that many people benefit from. And so I think that perspective in particular, what the world looks like from its underside, the Mm. underside of modernity and progress, is what I'm trying to give space to so that we don't just have the story created by those who uh, have been the beneficiaries of all of this stuff. We need to give people the tool the tools that they need to sort of, you, you know, you, you look at something with your normal vision and then there's a switch where you get to see the x-ray vision and you can like yeah. look through it to, to have that in place to say, I understand this from the perspective of why this thing is cool. Now let's think of all the ways that it can be used against me or against a group of people or, or whatever, just just to, to gain a better understanding. And yeah. I feel like that is, you know, in my case, my responsibility. And as you, uh, an author of, of this book, are, are giving uh, some some shining some light there uh, awesome. so that people can know, yeah, that there's there's more to it than just the progress and things like that, which yeah. when we look at the motivating factors, of course, yeah. uh, Apple is going to talk about how uh, Face ID on the iPhone is going to make it so much easier to unlock your phone. But yeah. then to not talk about the aspects of that that can then be used in nefarious ways or what have you yeah. is an irresponsible thing. But from that motivation that we've talked yeah. about, course that's not something they're going to talk about outward and that's where i think it's then our job to give people the the tools that they need to understand that but then also i i wonder for you you know looking at things from a sociological perspective Mm -hmm. what is your thought on on sort of a collective apathy I feel that we have yeah. on hitting accept to the terms of service and hitting mm-hmm. accept to the privacy policy. And yeah. is that something that we can change? 
Yeah. And so for for your first point, first, I just wanted to say how I really liked that analogy, like this, this idea of the x-ray vision. And I feel like, you know, that's what various disciplines are trying to provide through conceptual lenses. Like in sociology, we talk about having different theoretical or conceptual lenses to look on the world. Because when you change the lens, you see different things. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I think um, more people can do. You don't necessarily have to be trained in a field to adopt a conceptual lens to see things differently. And sometimes people ask me, you know, aren't you being a little too hard on tech? Or, you know, what's the other side of things? What's the positive view of it? You know, (laughs) and so... And I appreciate that impulse, you know, that we're taught, like, you know, we need a balanced view, whether it's in journalism or academia. But my view is also that you have entire marketing teams working on presenting the positive view. Like they're staying up 24 hours. (laughs) Like just log on to any company website and that is the positive. Like that's where all the resources, that's where all the energy in telling the story of the positive view. And so for those few of us who are trying to raise awareness about those other layers in the x-ray, then I don't think that we are um, beholden to try to um, rehearse again that positive view or that view that comes out of the marketing of various technologies. It's our job responsibility actually to voice the other stories mm-hmm. about technology, the other ways in which, um, you know, um, people are experiencing technologies. And then, again, you think about, you know, how part of, you know, the the forms of consent and that we are enrolled in, you know, the, the clicking, I accept, I accept, I accept, it's made so easy so that what we need is something like a way for not just individuals, but for collectives for the public to refuse like what would informed refusal look like when it comes to various surveillance technologies rather than um you know the opt-in versions you know we need ways in which we can not just as individuals but as a public say we don't want that Uh, (laughs) um even if you think that it's going to benefit it's going to benefit some people certainly um but it's likely to have all of these inequitable um implications as well and so um rather than think about a model of individual consent i would like us to think about what accountability structures we need and mechanisms we need to have forms of public and collective hmm. refusal of various tech developments that we've deemed um, we've deemed um, uh, harmful. Yeah, because there are some cities, I believe, that are uh, saying no to facial recognition. Mm-hmm. And that's right. I suppose San that's Francisco, one example. Somerville. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so those are examples of the mo- kind of the most harmful, the most obvious um, systems that people identify as um, really dampening democratic participation and dissent. And I think what we need also is even those technologies that are developed to help us, that are developed, for example, to prevent bias or to be more inclusive. We also need to have accountability around that, not just for the stuff that's obviously harmful and dangerous, but the whole spectrum. It's about not just focusing on particular technologies, but about our entire relationship to our material and digital world and to have greater stewardship around that and imbuing um, uh, our values into that so that it doesn't just reproduce the current reality and our historic patterns of discrimination. So it's, it's less about 
searching for only those technologies that are deemed dangerous and really stepping back and saying, what, what, how can we um, create a structure that thinks differently about technology? So it's not simply about consumer goods, but it's about the public good. Wow. See, I have to, so you, you've talked here about the idea that we've got, you know, there are teams that are paid to, to bring that positive outlook. And so I, from a personal experience, I'm, I'm thinking back, uh, I, I've done tech podcasts for quite a while and thinking back to the number of times where I or one of my co-hosts have been sort of slammed for having a negative perspective on a certain technology or yeah. complimented for having a positive uh, outlook oh, on some technology. Yeah. yeah. And to go, you know, oh, I like it when this person is on because they're so positive about this. Mm-hmm. And so that speaks to a a a. a, a education or, or a socialization of the public, at least yeah. among, you know, tech podcast listeners that yeah. it needs to be positive and we need to look yeah. at these companies with like, I don't know, open hands and open wallets and uh, yeah. uh, open minds. And that's, uh, that's a whole nother, I don't know, a whole nother conversation, at least in the sense of yeah. like, where does that come from that we yeah. hear something negative about a, a company that is only just looking at things and looking at the reality of the situation. And then there's this um, cognitive dissonance that takes place almost and where that learning comes from and how our interest and our identity, I think is tied to uh, companies that we enjoy and, and the products that they make. Yeah, absolutely. And so even just the way that our language is, is ill equipped, you know, to just think about things as either positive or negative. When we engage something seriously, you know, we're likely to see it from many different dimensions. And the the fact of the matter is, if the majority of the marketing um, that's produced by companies, they have a vested interest in getting us to see it from the perspective of all that we're going to enjoy and all that we're going to benefit. That means for tech journalists, for scholars of science and technology, for other people who are trying to raise awareness, they are in conversation with that dominant narrative. So mm. the little bit of time that we're going to be on air or the little bit of time you're going to be spending reading, say, my book, I'm not going to use up the space and the time to tell you what all of that marketing is already telling you. (laughs) I'm going to try to give you a different set of stories and a different set of perspectives rather than do, you know, a a song and dance that pretends like it's trying to give you both sides or all sides. You already know that side. (laughs) You already believe that. Many people already believe that side. And so the little bit of space we have to talk, we should be thinking about what perspectives have been left out of that dominant story about that. The the marketing of this is all good. And so um, hopefully we're, we're trying to seed a more engaged public that is looking at things less through this binary lens of negative or positive and just trying to see the many dimensions of something. And so I think that that's part of this public education that really your podcast can contribute to. The folks that that are looking for a way to zoom out the lens, like we've talked about, where they want to see the bigger picture here. And I think that... um, your book uh, does a good job of playing a role in that. Uh, this is, of course, Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. And uh, you. this book is out. It's been out since, uh, was it mid-July that it, that it went out? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, you can find it. Uh, we'll, of course, include a link to... Uh, 
Ruhal Benjamin's website, but also you can find it, I, I would imagine, where all good books are sold. Uh, all, the, all the places. All the places. You can find it in all the places. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us. And My pleasure. By golly, I hope, uh, I hope to, to have you back on again in the future because I feel like we could have talked about so – there's so much to talk about here. Like I said, the, yeah, the layers absolutely. here. absolutely. It would be my pleasure. It was really um, a, a really great conversation. Thank you so much for including me and thanks to all thanks to all your listeners as well well thank you and um if people are you know want to want to get in touch with you online are you on social media do you have a a website yeah so let us know a little bit about that if you will absolutely absolutely find me on twitter at ruha number the number nine um that's the best way um to reach out to me and i will be uh love to have conversations virtual conversations with you guys take care Excellent. Well, thank you so very much. Uh, This is, of course, Triangulation, which records, uh, (laughs) which typically records and publishes every Friday at 1130 a.m. PST, 230 p.m. EST. And of course, if you want to tune in live, you can do so uh, at twit.tv slash live. If you're listening to the show now, then that probably means that you are not tuning in live, but instead have gotten it into your podcast app of choice or saw it on uh, social media. So don't forget to subscribe to the show at twit.tv slash triangulation, where we've got links to the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Uh, Thank you to all of you out there for tuning in today. Thank you to those of you who are listening. And thanks once again, Ruha Benjamin, for joining us for this episode of Triangulation. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.